Tell us a little bit about what you saw and, and, and being able to relay that message to Cora when you watched Kimbrell pitch and, and kind of help out so he wasn't uh, tipping his pitches. So tipping pitches, we hear about it all the time. People at home understand what tipping pitches is all about. It's amazing. Man. And that's remarkable. Alex, hello from the past or hello from the, the future. I don't really, I never know how to tense these things when we record the podcast five days in advance. Do you know what is the appropriate space-time continuum on recording a podcast ahead of time and what tense we should use? What is the AP style for this? I really hope AP editors have have never even tried to consider how to use tenses when pre-recording a, a podcast. I suppose you can say hello to me in present tense and you can say, Hello to the listeners in, I mean, you're saying hello to the listeners from the past, right? <laughs> but but at this moment, you're speaking to them. You're definitely confusing yourself more. Yeah, I think I am. This is why we need the AP style guide. We need them to update for us podcasters. I'm How more, else will I'm we make Chicago our way style. through? You're more Chicago style. No. Is that right? Chicago style is, is weird. Nobody uses that. Come on. Nobody uses that, Alex. Anyway, hello. We are recording this podcast five days in advance because I am leaving the country to go to London for a vacation. And we didn't want to leave the podcast feed completely dark, but we were not going to be able to record on our usual timeline. So if something happens between now and then that is relevant to the Tipping Pitches universe, it's not going to be talked about on this podcast. How, uh, how are you feeling? Last time we spoke, which I know technically at recording time was something in the realm of 48 hours ago. Mm -hmm. But you were sick with uh, the one they call coronavirus. <laughs> I'm feeling pretty good. Okay. Last time we were recording, I was feeling totally fine. All mm -hmm. symptoms gone except coffee and peanut butter tasted bad. My yeah. two favorite things in the world. <laughs> Um, and as we sit here to record, that is uh, still the case. Peanut butter slightly better. Coffee still, still terrible. I went into Starbucks to get a iced green tea, and just sitting in there, the coffee scent. It was it was really tough. I am going to clip out those fifteen seconds of you just shitting on coffee, <laughs> so that I can use it as I don't know motivation for myself. No, this that was recorded under duress. Uh, no, I have, I have now officially today is the day as we sit here to record this. Uh, today is the day of my, my full 10 day quarantine. So I'm, I'm good to go I'm back out into planet earth. I don't know if it's ready for me and I don't know if I'm ready for it. Are any of us really ready for the world? I th I'm I more concerned I'm... about whether I'm ready for the, the lads of London, the lads of the world. Although they I guess a, with my new super, my new super immunity, I don't have that much to be worried about. That's true. Well, and you got a you got a co whole cohort of of baseball fans over there that you can right. you can commiserate with. You've got our our boys over at Batflips and Nerds, got the baseball the baseball Brit. I know that covers like four people total there, <laughs> but I'm sure there are others. That's everybody. Maybe who even likes some who listen to our podcast in all of the UK. Um, I'm looking forward to that trip. We didn't want to leave. The podcast feed completely dark so instead we decided to do 
a one-topic podcast, and that one topic is uh, the United States Senate Judiciary Committee, something that we care about and respect deeply here. Mm -hmm. We very much respect the honor and the power of the United States Senate and the Senate Judiciary Committee. And so we are going to, in solemn C-SPAN tones, we're going to talk about that Senate Judiciary Committee. But before we do all of that, I am Bobby Wagner. I am Alex Baisley. And you are listening to Tipping Pitches. Alex, this is where we usually shout out the new patrons for the week, but we're recording this so far in advance. I don't know who those new patrons are. So thank you to unnamed new patrons X and Y and Z and a bunch of other letters. Please wow, sign up for the Patreon. Patreon.com backslash tipping pitches. There are three tiers. The first tier, it'll get you access to our Slack, which is very lively. Discussing what we're going to discuss this week, a letter sent from the United States Senate Judiciary Committee signed by four senators. We'll get to those senators in just a moment. That letter was sent to Harry Marino, who was on this podcast just a few months ago. Heard of him. The executive director of Advocates for Minor Leaguers. You've also heard of that organization. You're familiar with uh, their work? Once or twice, yeah. So we thought, given that we, uh, we don't know what's going to happen in the news, we thought we would just spend the whole podcast talking about this letter and answering the series of questions that they have laid out. Asking about the Major League Baseball antitrust exemption. This is another topic of conversation hotly discussed on the Tipping Pitches podcast very frequently. And this letter, it comes at a weird time. I mean, the last couple of podcasts, we've talked about various stories about treatment of minor leaguers. It's been sort of the underlying current of conversation for this show, I I guess, basically since the pandemic. And, you know, we've had our sort of like meta take a step back. Where is the state of minor league baseball labor? Uh, what does all of this increased media coverage really mean for the the fight to unionize the minor leagues, the fight to improve working conditions in the minor leagues? And I mean, I know we joked at the top of this podcast about respecting the office of the United States Senate Judiciary Committee, but this does sort of feel like something coming to a head here, right? Um, I imagine that many of you have seen this letter, but if you haven't, we're going to go into great detail. So don't worry, you don't need to go. You don't need to go find it if you haven't seen it yet. We will read it basically word for word here. But does this feel to you? Does this feel like a moment of not validation? Because I, I don't. That's insulting. Like I don't, we don't need the, the minor league labor effort does not need to be validated by fucking Dick Durbin, but or Mike Lee. But does this feel to you like a little bit of a step? beyond where we've been before. Are we in uncharted territory, Alex? Uncharted waters? To be honest, I'm, I'm not so sure that we are. Congress has kind of played footsie with the antitrust exemption extended to Major League Baseball for a few years now, right? And there's been a lot of kind of... There have been a handful of elected officials who have kind of grandstanded about potentially getting rid of it in the past, most notably last summer in the, in the wake of Major League Baseball pulling the All-Star game out of Atlanta, right? Yes, yes. Stealing $100 million worth of business from the good, the good small business owners of Atlanta, Georgia. I, 
I think what what feels slightly different about this is how targeted it seems and how detailed it is in its kind of in its curiosity. Um, it recognizes Harry's work and advocates for minor leaguers' work. And there are some specific things that that it brings up in relation to MLB's antitrust exemption that we kind of haven't seen in this sort of grandstanding before, right? And we'll get into what those details look like. It's it's far, far too premature to even start pretending to know what this might actually end up looking like, you know, what might actually come of this. But there are some interesting questions in here that the Judiciary Committee is is asking Harry and his organization. And I want to get into all of that with you. I also want to say, this is what they're spending their time on right now? Bro, first of all, yes. Second of all, we're gonna get we're gonna discuss this when we discuss all of these questions. But damn, if we haven't answered all of these questions on Tipping Pitches already, mm-hmm. like Senate Judiciary Committee, please like and subscribe. Yeah. <laughs> like, come on. Right. And like a lot of it is very obviously kind of set up to like like there are a lot of questions here that have almost that are almost rhetorical. Right. Yeah. That have very, very easy answers. Harry Marino, would you say that MLB owners are craven? <laughs> check yet yeah, check Y for yes, check N right. for no. Right. Is Jerry Reinsdorf a billionaire? <laughs> yes or no. <laughs> so I don't know. I like this this does come at a really weird time, just like in our country right now. Right. Yeah. And you could argue that maybe Congress uh has bigger priorities, has bigger uh, fish to fry, and I don't entirely believe that they are they are doing this out of the goodness of their hearts because they finally came to to a realization, right? I think there's probably an opportunity in there in here that they see for some sort of bipartisanship, you know, and sticking it to the man. That's true, or or this letter sort of presupposes that. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but this letter sort of presupposes that they might be interested in a law that extends protections to minor league baseball players, that mm-hmm. carves minor league baseball players out of the antitrust exemption. That is that is what this letter is kind of implying. But, Alex, before we get into this and start answering Senator Durbin's mm-hmm. pointed questions... Couldn't this just be a way of um, extorting Major League Baseball into giving them more money to not pass a law like this? Like, oh, we're going to make a big dog and pony show of sending this letter to Harry Marino. And what we're actually going to do is force MLB owners to give us more money so that we pass them another law. Should we bring out the, the tinfoil hat meter? Because that's like an eight. Is it? Is it, though? Because an we're, eight as we're in some- feels plausible to me oh okay eight, an eight is in your you're like tipping your tinfoil cap to me right you right believe right. what i'm what, picking up what i'm putting down just just a thought before we before we dive fully into this so okay what does the senate judiciary committee do if you're listening at home um this is from judiciary.senate i thought you were about to ask me and i was like I, that's the one no, question i'm not prepared no for. no no that's what we have the internet for in addition to its critical role in providing oversights to the department of justice and the agencies under the department's jurisdiction 
including the Federal Bureau of Investigation and the Department of Homeland Security. They're really crushing it there. A lot of oversight with those two Mm -hmm. organizations. The Judiciary Committee plays an important role in the consideration of nominations and pending legislation. So, by making a big public show, by the fact that Evan Drellick is tweeting out this letter that was sent to Harry Marino, what they are trying to imply, like I said, is that they are there might be they might be considering nominating, or there might already be pending legislation. And there is. We we know that there is pending legislation about MLB's antitrust exemption. It's it's sponsored by Bernie Sanders. We've talked about that before in the past. But this would indicate that it has a little bit wider support. That would be sort of the the political subtext of this letter. So um are we ready to get into the letter or do you want to talk about the four senators who actually uh put their John Hancock on it first? It is an interesting collection of dudes. <laughs> yeah, it is. We we have we have one Richard J. Durbin, affectionately known as Dick. He's the chair mm-hmm. of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Yep. Uh his counterpart in uh his counterpart in the Republican Party is one Charles E. Grassley, good old Chuck. Mm-hmm. The He's man who, who will not quit. <laughs> He's still powering through. Mm-hmm. Coming to the old Pentagon, nine to five, five days a week. <laughs> Is that even where senators go? I don't know. <laughs> then we have Richard Blumenthal and Michael Lee. These are guys who have uh, been around for a little while. Uh, mm-hmm. Two of them are, are Democrat. Two of them are uh, Republican. Can I read you a little passage from the uh, the old website, the election website for Mike Lee? Sure. For Mike Lee for U.S. Senate uh-huh. in Utah. Help Mike continue the fight against Democrats' socialist agenda by making a donation. Mike Lee is a champion for conservative values and a defender of the Constitution. And then it gives you um, a little option to donate here. You can donate $20 to help fight for conservative values stand against the radical left. You can donate $50 if you are interested in ending the reckless spending. It's time for fiscal responsibility. You can donate $100. Makes the quick jump up to $100. Don't worry. We're going to go back down to $75 next. Up to $100, back down to $75. Out of order. (laughs) If you donate $100, you're a defender of the Constitution. Our rights are in jeopardy. And if you donate $75... You are going to bring back common sense solutions and end the left's socialist policies. All it takes is $75. Common tag sense your, solutions. Tag yourself. <laughs> I'm rights are definitely in jeopardy right about now. I'd like to also point out that they spelled jeopardy wrong. J E A P O R D Y. Come on, there's a whole show for that, Senator Lee. Come on. <laughs> Alex Trebek did not die for this. R.I.P. to the goat. Yeah. What is Mike needs an editor? Mike needs AP style guide. That's okay. True. Th- those are the four senators. Um, let's get into the letter. You ready? Yeah. Dear Mr. Marino, May 29th, 2022 marked the 100 year anniversary of the Supreme Court's unilateral creation of Major League Baseball's antitrust exemption in the case Federal Baseball Club versus National League. As we mark this anniversary, We write to seek information about how baseball's antitrust exemption is impacting competition in the labor market. Something so important to someone like Mike Lee. 
conservative values, competition in the labor market for minor league baseball players, as well as the operations of minor league teams. Your answers will help inform the Senate Judiciary Committee's analysis of the necessity of this century-old exemption. We ask that you provide answers to the following questions by July 6th. Pretty tight turnaround here. Yeah. July 6th. I don't do anything on that quick of a turnaround, except this podcast. (laughs) Well, my guess is Harry Marino could probably answer these questions in in faster time than we could. So I don't think he's pressed. It's a lot of pressure for Harry. And I... By doing this podcast, I would just like to say, if Harry wants to give the answers that we give, <laughs> by all means, Harry, feel free. Copy the work. I, I absolutely hope he does not do that. Please, Harry, if you're listening, I, I disavow that statement. Well, okay. I'd like to imagine an alternate world where we get this letter from the good old Senate Judiciary Committee. <laughs> are you prepared to get into that headspace right now? I mean, that's basically what we're about to do, right? We are going to pretend yeah. like this letter was addressed to us we're doing the senate judiciary committee um which it's not just those four members it's a it's an interesting collection Mm -hmm. of of people on this in this body including diane feinstein amy amy klobuchar tbt oh yeah john ossoff remember that guy my dude (laughs) and of course are we literally just doing remember some guys for u.s senators right now Here's the most important one, and this is definitely how it got here, is Ted Cruz. He was the one who was trying to get the biggest W off of taking the antitrust exemption away from Major League Baseball for moving the All-Star game in 2020. Right. Interestingly, he's mentioned nowhere in this letter. All right, let's do the questions. Alex, question number one. Will you please do the good senators a favor and answer this question? Aside from baseball, do any American professional sports have a general exemption from the antitrust laws? Well, that's a very interesting question, Mr. Durbin. Senator Durbin, excuse me. Honorable no. Durbin. <laughs> right. The, it's like it's going gonna, it's gonna to be like the honorable committee chair. I always think of that scene from Step Brothers when um, John C. Riley's character refuses to call the dad anything other than Dr. Doback. And he's like, please stop calling me Dr. Doback. I'm your stepdad now. And he's like, Doback? He just calls him just his last name. (laughs) So to the Honorable Dick, no. No, there is not another sports league in America that has this sort of general exemption from antitrust laws. Of course, really, it's a a one-word answer. much, Much discussed on tipping pitches, which is why when I first read this letter... I was like, y'all don't have Google? <laughs> Why are you making Harry Marino answer that simple of a question for you guys? But, you know, they warmed themselves up. The, the questions get a little bit tougher. Right. Well, and, and it strikes me as them. It's not them literally not knowing, right? It more seems like setting the stage don't for, put it for Harry's them. response. Well, you're right. Don't put it past them. They literally might not know. They might just be like, with the way the NFL is going, I kind of just assumed they had to have an antitrust exemption. <laughs> We just let those guys do anything. <laughs> okay, number two. What effect does the antitrust exemption have on the incidence of lockouts and work stoppages at the MLB level? And what impact do these incidents have on minor league players and teams? This is an interesting question. Yeah, and it's n- not one that I think we have really spent much time addressing 
head on, right? We, we discussed the exemption and we discussed the lockout and we often discuss minor leaguers, but this is kind of an area where, where the Venn diagram of all of these really comes together, right? And the Judiciary Committee recognizes that, that minor leaguers are the ones who are most vulnerable as a result of this exemption. I mean, the, sh- the short answer, right, is that collusion is effectively legal as, right. a, as a result of this antitrust exemption, right? The Major League Baseball can fix minor league baseball salaries, which technically is illegal any anywhere else <laughs> well that's sort of okay so now you're getting ahead of yourself a, a touch because that's sort of what they're asking about in the third question but as it pertains to lockouts and work stoppages i think that what they're going for here is that you can implement a lockout and work stoppage at the minor league level if you, if you wanted to you could lock them out whenever you wanted and you could collude with the other 29 owners to lock out all of your minor leaguers all at the same time, which in other industries is illegal. But of course, they would never do this because they're already paying minor leaguers such little money that there's no reason to actually lock them out. They, they are providing way more value than it would ever, you would ever give from locking your, your employees out. And you know when they ask about work stoppages at the MLB level, what impact these inv- incidents have on minor league players and teams? I mean, the impact is that they they don't get any of the trickle-down benefits from any kind of strike from the MLBPA Mm -hmm. or a work stoppage or the the CBAs that those two things result in. Right. Or a guarantee of pay throughout the duration of the lockout, right? As they are effectively unemployed. Unlike, say, the protections the MLBPA provides for its players, right? Right. And as we were approaching the start to the Major League Baseball season, the originally scheduled start to the Major League Baseball season, and we had to push that back because of the MLB level lockout. The minor league season was coming. Like, they were going to start that no matter what. So, I mean, what impact do does a work stoppage at the Major League level have on minor league players? Kind of like none, but also at the same time, like so much, those players don't have a chance to get called up to Major League Baseball. So they're just going and, and working without the, the hope and the dream that they're usually sold as the reason that they are there. So, I don't know. I'd be, interesting to, I'd be interested to see how Harry answers this one. Because during the lockout, I mean, minor leaguers who had sympathy with the Major League Baseball Players Association still had to come to work. Otherwise, they would have been cut. So in part three, we really start getting into the meat of it all, right? And it's a, it's a three-part question. I hated these questions on tests. I, I know. It's not fair. MLB requires all minor league players to sign a minor league uniform player contract. A, what role, if any, does MOB's antitrust exemption play in enabling this contract? B, discuss the, the impact of the antitrust exemption on negotiating of minor league players, contract they really lengths, ri- wages. They really write this like it's a test. Like, <laughs> right. Please discuss the <laughs> exactly. impact. In, in five paragraphs or less. <laughs> topic uh, sentence, topic <laughs> sentence, body. What what effect would removing the antitrust exemption have on, on minor league player working conditions? And C, if a more tailored approach, like extending the Curt Flood Act to cover minor league players was taken, what would be the impact? So let's let's break that down, shall we? Because there's there is a lot, a lot in there. Okay, part A. 
Easiest part. What role, if any, does MLB's antitrust exemption play in enabling this conduct? It's the reason. It's the reason that they can do this. Mm-hmm. In any other industry, it would be illegal for different companies to say to each other, let's make our employees all sign this exact same contract so that so that we don't have to compete for those employees' labor, so that they can't withhold their labor and choose to go somewhere else, choose to work for another company because they're paying better or they have better benefits or they're in a better location. The reason that minor league teams at the behest of their MLB owners who are paying their bills, the reason that minor league teams can do that is because of the antitrust exemption. I feel like we've talked about that a little bit, but it's sometimes a little bit too in the weeds to, to explain in those terms. But in the context of this letter and in the context of that question, that is the the number one reason that MLB is able to pay minor leaguers such little money. Now, if the antitrust exemption had never existed, does that mean that minor leaguers would be making 100k a year? No, they would they would not collude. They would not collude, Alex. They would uh they would look around and they would say, "Hmm, what what do I think that Jerry Reinsdorf wants to pay his minor leaguers?" And then 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 it the pay might be a little higher, but it wouldn't actually be that high. Right. But you also might see a, a world in which there are other viable places for minor leaguers to go, right? Right now, Major League Baseball has a monopoly on effectively the sport of professional baseball in the United States, right? If you want to play professionally, this is the place to go. And so when a team holds the contract out in front of you, if you want to do the thing that you've trained your entire life to do up until this point, you have to sign that contract with yeah. no with no ability to really negotiate, with no protections uh, provided to you by any sort of union or anything like that. You get, you're really boxed in, right? And so that's why in those contracts, they are able to set those wages so low, right? Outline these, you know, oftentimes ridiculous stipulations that MLB requires minor leaguers to adhere to. And what the UPC does and the antitrust exemption enabling the UPC is it just makes it makes it really easy to suppress the labor conditions for all 30 clubs. Like they don't even have to try that hard. They can just meet and say, here's where we want to set it. And it makes it impossible basically for or it makes it extremely passe for a team to not follow those conventions because you're meeting with your other owners and they're telling you they are basically whipping you into line to do that. And if the antitrust exemption didn't exist, I do think that you might see a rogue team here or there that treats their minor leaguers better. But because so many of the teams are, and so many of the owners are colluding together to make it this exact uniform player contract, it's just, it's not, not that I'm saying that owners want to do this, but it's never going to happen that a bunch of owners are going to sit down and say, we're just going to pay more. Not with the antitrust exemption the way that it is. Yeah, definitely. So as you said, what does the antitrust exemption have to do with this? Everything. Yeah. It is, it is the reason. Part B is super open-ended and super hard. Please discuss the impact of the antitrust exemption on the negotiation of minor league players' length of contract, wages, housing, or other working conditions. I don't think that's hard. I mean, the the antitrust exemption is the reason that you can't negotiate on those things and that the uniform player contract is given to you and it's a take it or leave it kind of thing. 
which honestly, a lot of people listening to this podcast probably can relate to. Most people, most people are probably like, yeah, that's how it felt in my industry. And to that, I would say, if it feels like you're being colluded against, that's probably because basically you are. <laughs> Capitalism is just colluding against workers. That's kind of the whole point. Um, but it's uh, it's illegal in other places. So, But the second part of that, what effect would removing the antitrust exemption have on minor league player working conditions? That's a really hard question. And it's a question that we attempted to answer when we did our episode about the antitrust exemption that was completely devoted to it. And we talked about how, how it came about and we talked about what a world without it might look like. And I think that is what people have been sort of pontificating about online all day. I saw Jeff Passan did an 18 tweet thread about this, which was like, just write an article, big dog. But what, what effect would removing that antitrust exemption have? Honestly, nothing, nothing fast. If you just remove the antitrust exemption and minor leaguers did not unionize, I don't think that a bunch of teams would suddenly start paying players a lot more. That's like kind of what I was trying to get at in mm-hmm. part A. But, and, and this starts to get into part three of this question, right? Is removing the antitrust exemption does potentially open up a pathway for minor leaguers to take Major League Baseball to court over these substandard working conditions, right? And that's why, and that's, and that's what question, and that's what part three asks about, right? Is it says if a more tailored approach, like extending the Curt Flood Act to cover minor league players was taken, what would be the impact, right? The Curt Flood Act being the, the law that Congress passed that specifically carved major league baseball players when it comes to labor related issues between players and the league right so it's the reason why baseball players are able to have free agency right like it's the reason that they are actually able to have meaningful contract negotiations right and it's what effectively forced major league baseball's hand into saying we have to come to the table and bargain fairly with you guys Yes. And if that more tailored approach was taken and the Curt Flood Act extended to minor league players, I think that the most immediate impact that you would see is a lot of minor leaguers and their agents, with their agents' help, they would they would get that uniform player contract and they'd say, can I please have a red marker? Mm-hmm. And they would be crossing a lot of stuff out of it. And they would be saying, no, this is how much you need to pay me. No, this is this is what my name, image, and likeness is worth. No, you can't. I, I don't actually have to sign that stuff away to you just to play minor league baseball for you. And guess what? The owners might say, "Go fuck yourself." Like they they are not going to go. They're not going to roll over lightly on something like this. They've lobbied Congress for decades to get the protections that they have so that they can pay minor leaguers less than minimum wage in the Save America's Pastime Act, and. If the Curt Flood Act extended to minor leaguers, I think the impact would be that the the top tier guys would be able to negotiate their value a lot more. It still would not really help a lot of those lower tier guys unless unless they formed a union. Right. Which, if you took away that uniform player contract and you took away some of those antitrust benefits and some guys started seeing 
the benefits of being able to negotiate your worth at that low level, I think it might make the unionizing effort a little bit easier, honestly. When you're not so crushed, when you're not so immediately crushed by something like the UPC, you might actually have some time to sit down and think, what am I actually worth? Mm -hmm. What would happen if I actually got to negotiate what I'm worth? Yeah. Or what would happen if I teamed up with dozens of other minor league players, hundreds of other minor league players, and took them to court over antitrust violations, right? As as we saw in the in the in the case recently regarding minor league players and effectively wage theft from Major League Baseball, right? Like there actually is a viable path there. And it's something that poses enough of a threat that MOB is going to do whatever it can to to stay away from that possibility, right? Even if that means maybe moving an inch in some of those negotiations, right? Yeah. Now, the, the one thing that I will add is that, just to be clear, the antitrust exemption does not prevent minor leaguers from forming a union. Right. Before the Major League Baseball players were carved out from the antitrust exemption by the Curt Flood Act, they still had their union and they still had things like free agency. They still had all of the protections that a CBA gave them because a collective bargaining agreement, that's, that's law that governs your workplace like that. No matter what the owners want to do with their antitrust behavior and their anti-competitive behavior, if you have a collective bargaining agreement that says that you have to be treated a certain way that supersedes that. So when people try to draw a direct line between the antitrust exemption and forming a union at the minor league level. I sort of chafe at that a little bit, but I get I get what they're saying. If you can start to if you can start to improve labor conditions at that level piece by piece and you don't have that weight of the antitrust exemption of them colluding against you and them only paying so little money to everybody at that level uniformly, then it frees up more time, energy and money to organize the minor leagues, but it would still be an incredibly large challenge is all, is all I will say. Like all of the problems about forming a minor league union that we've discussed on this podcast, the things that make it so hard, guys going up and down guys, moving city to city, the pressure, the stigma associated with forming a union, fearing like you're going to get cut all of that stuff. Antitrust exemption goes away for them. All of that stuff is still there. So Mm -hmm. I, I would caution people to not get ahead of their themselves and think antitrust exemption over minor league baseball unionized owners going down, you know? Yeah. Okay. Let's go to question four. Recent reports, including an article in the athletic, nothing like senators reading the athletic. Do you think that they have to pay for it? Or do you think that they have some kind of paywall workaround? I, I feel like it probably came in the lobbying package for the save America's pastime <laughs> act. They were like, we'll comp you. We'll comp you on this. Recent reports, including an article in The Athletic entitled A Failed System, A Corrupt Process Exploits Dominican Baseball Prospects. Is an international draft really the answer? Have identified rampant corruption and abuse in the market for international prospects. From giving performance-enhancing drugs to teenagers to shady dealings between scouts and trainers. To your knowledge, how widespread are these practices and what role, if any, does MLB's antitrust exemption play in creating the conditions that enable these practices? First of all, I have a new goal for the podcast. 
Okay. It's to have one of our titles cited in a letter from the Senate Judiciary Committee. Like in this recent episode, Alex Rodriguez and the legal definition of racketeering. <laughs> you guys stated X. Is it true? You know, it's becoming a a clear possibility in in the midst of the downfall of of this democracy. So, you know, fucking sure. Why not? Bernie would be the one to do it. Okay, um, do you have an answer for this question? This one is very complicated. <laughs> it is very complicated. It's very, it's very naughty, and it's something that we haven't really addressed too much on the podcast, which is the kind of international state of affairs when it comes to players entering the league from foreign countries, right? But when these senators lay out those examples of practices from performance-enhancing drugs to shady dealings between the the scouts and trainers and and handlers and that sort of thing and ask how widespread is it, the answer is quite. There have obviously been some reforms that Major League Baseball has tried to implement in the last few years. And obviously, in this latest round of CBA negotiations, an international draft was, was kind of one of the the last pieces to click. And it's still something that's being negotiated over right now. But as it stands, it's still a a far more lawless system than even minor league baseball, which is on its own in a, in a very bad state, obviously. I think the, the biggest role that the antitrust exemption plays in this is that it allowed them to all create this world together. Yeah. You know what I mean? It it, mm-hmm. it allowed them to come together and say, "Here's how we're gonna. Here's what we're gonna pay international free agents. Here's how we're gonna manage the recruiting process." And you might not think that they did much of that because it's pure chaos, pure lawless, wild, wild west chaos. To the point that MLB's international practices are being investigated for things like human trafficking. But there was still an element of collusion in coming together and saying, "This is how we're gonna set up this system." And if there is no, if there are no teams that are allowed under the banner of MLB, if there are no teams are, that are allowed to do it better or do it fairly, then you're never going to have a market in which international free agents, who are, by the way, as this as this says, who are 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 year old kids, you're never going to have a system where those people can enter any kind of market and get any kind of fair compensation you you just get what mlb decides right exactly they are subjected to the market that major league baseball has has set for you right which includes things like salary caps right and so the antitrust exemption goes away all of a sudden you were talking about more leverage for young players when they are trying to come to the united states to play baseball yeah. And and there is kind of an interesting there is kind of an interesting corollary to that, which is the fact that amateur players from the United States also have very little leverage in how they enter Major League Baseball. So right. if you talk about overhauling MLB's international system to give those players more leverage, it it stands to reason that something like the amateur draft may be 
up for debate all of a sudden as well. Which is mm-hmm. which is not to say that that Major League Baseball would voluntarily look at changing that whatsoever. But here's a hypothetical for you that the antitrust exemption makes only a hypothetical mm-hmm. that that could never happen in the real world. Let's say a renegade group of businessmen and women said, "I look at the internet. I'm a big baseball fan." Let's say, let's say it's you and me, Alex. We mm-hmm. come into some some Patreon money. We got a bill, just a billion dollars <laughs> that someone decided to give us. And you and I say, the international player pool, what's going on, the international player market, is pure chaos. And it's immoral. And it's terrible. And I agree with what you're saying about the domestic amateur player pool, too. They don't have a lot of choice either. They can either go to the NCAA or they can go to Major League Baseball. And what if you and I started a new amateur player league? A a competition to minor league baseball where players could come and we could pay them $100,000 a year or $500,000 a year. Or maybe what they're worth, like millions of dollars a year okay, in, okay. This, when, well, in this market. No, no, mm. <laughs> All right, on. come on. You get, you get on the, the manager's side of the table. I already don't want you spending the money that I don't have. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Let's say we're paying players a million dollars a year, mm-hmm. like the G League in basketball, or like you know, like the Big Three tried to do in basketball, or like the other com- competitive, the competition leagues in that we have in football too. MLB could put all of their weight behind destroying that. They could all thirty of those billionaires could come together in a room and they could say. They could use all of their collective contacts to say, don't lease them a stadium. Don't give them a line of credit. Don't take their, don't give them advertising money. Right. Don't you're play in, their games in, on television. ESPN, you're infringing you, our, on our location rights. Right. ESPN, if you want to play their games on TV, then we're ending our con- We're terminating our contract with you right now. Fox Sports, if you want to play their games on TV, no more regional sports broadcasts of Major League Baseball games. They could legally do all that. That is not legal anywhere else in the United States unless you have an antitrust exemption. And so to me, that's how destroying a hypothetical like that, that is how it enables these international practices because there's no other option for anybody. Fraught as any of those alternative options might end up being in the real world that they don't even exist at all. Right. The fact that there is one pipeline to Major League Baseball and it is through the one that they've created and set the market conditions for, means that you have a a legalized monopoly on the game, right? And you've given these kids no other choice, which is is maybe what this whole antitrust thing is was intended to do in the first place. Maybe. Uh, okay, question five. In lobbying for the Save America's Pastime Act, MLB claimed the bill was necessary to prevent minor league contraction. However, despite its enactment, prior to the 2021 baseball season, Dozens of minor league teams lost their affiliations with MLB clubs as a result of its reorganization of the minor leagues. A. How did this reorganization affect minor league baseball players? B. Did the antitrust exemption play any role in MLB's ability to restructure the minor leagues in this way? And C. What effect would repealing the Save America's Pastime Act have on the minor leagues and minor league players? Now we're getting into the good stuff. We are getting into the good stuff. I. It's. Look, it's it's not funny, obviously, but it is a a little bit funny that Major League Baseball set themselves up 
for this by yes. going to Congress to ask for exemptions for minimum wage laws and and lying to their their faces about not only why they needed why these conditions were needed for minor league baseball but what it would do to safeguard the future right of minor league baseball right you remember the 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 title of the act save called america's save america's pastime. pastime yeah you could argue that contracting 40 teams is maybe antithetical to that <laughs> it is kind of deliciously their fault you know what i mean that all of this is happening because i i do think that that contraction you can see how that has to to call back to your joke from earlier that has across the aisle appeal they just mm-hmm. eliminated these 12 teams and they didn't tell the teams ahead of time they didn't give them warning they didn't give them a financial cushion and to get into part A, how did this re- reorganization affect minor league baseball players? Where they were playing baseball last year is no longer where they're playing baseball now. They had to pick up and move. And all of the staff that they had, all of the concessions workers that they knew, their apartment lease, their car that was registered in Staten Island in New York, they might have to leave the state and go live somewhere else. Like that, that is how it affected minor league baseball players. Or or you're out or you're simply out of a job. Or that because there are fewer teams and you are at the bottom of the organizational chart, you're done. They just cut your job. Yeah. Although I don't think that the Senate has a problem with layoffs. It's kind of like the whole (laughs) MO of this country. Did the antitrust exemption play any role in MLB's ability to restructure the minor leagues in this way? Yes, it did. 100%. It was the thing that allowed them to do that. They can, that, that Rob Manfred can from on high decree that this, that his, cartel of major league baseball teams can just cut out some of those little subsidiaries with no prior warning and no prior discussion and no opportunity for those companies to compete to keep their affiliation is because of the antitrust exemption part c what effect would repealing the save america's pastime act have on the minor leagues and minor league players alex i don't know can you can you tell me (laughs) I have thoughts on what repealing that act should do <laughs> right. and how they should be treated if that act was repealed, but I don't know what the actual effect would be. Do you? Not quite. I mean, I you know, you certainly wouldn't instantly see every major league baseball team paying each player seven fifty an hour for their work, right? Would you or, not or, or maybe or maybe you you would, but you would have a very narrowly defined rationale for what that work actually is right which is what the argument that we've seen them make already right between spring training and extended spring training and the entire off season and travel time and travel time yeah so i think it it just kind of shifts the the contours of the fight a little bit because you would still see major league baseball trying to suppress those salaries doing it through slightly different means. But it's right. like does that sound like it may make sense? It does. And you probably would see Major League Baseball try to jump on the train of something like Prop 22 in California where they try to carve out these very specific this this very specific terminology that calls you an at-will employee ver- like versus a Versus a hourly employee, and that means that you don't have to provide them all of these things. You don't have to give them health care. You don't have to guarantee their shifts because rideshare drivers and and food delivery workers they are 
getting to choose when they work. That is how you would see M- that, that's how you would see minor league baseball players treated in the offseason. They're choosing when they work. Like they if they come into the facility, then all of these things. But I do think that there are fewer things that MLB could wriggle out of, fewer labor laws that MLB could wriggle out of. Of course, if they repealed the Save America's Pastime Act, it would give a much better legal case for them to be able to say, we need to make minimum wage, period. And we need to be, if we are full-time employees, then we need to be guaranteed that minimum wage whenever we are doing baseball-related activities. Right. And then MLB would have to, would be in the very difficult job, which is what they don't want to do, which is why they lobbied for the Save America's Pastime Act, of defining when and where baseball-related activities are happening so that they could present their case in a court, in a, in a labor court. Right. And that's really hard. They don't want to do that. No. Because guess what? Baseball-related activities are all the time. <laughs> and they would have to be paying <laughs> these players all of the time. Right. Well, and minimum and, wa- even a minimum wage starts to add up to much more than they're currently play- paying those players right now. Yeah, exactly. And we're already star- starting to see the kind of dismantling of that idea that baseball-related work is limited to the nine innings that you're on the field, right? Notably, as a bit of an aside, the, the, the Save America's Pastime Act was passed through the, the reconciliation bill as, as effectively a footnote back in 28 back in 2018 um a a bill that that richard durbin and richard blumenthal happily signed off on happily said yay i will throw minor league baseball players under the bus if it means a little slush fund money over here for my own pet project (laughs) (laughs) oh alex don't you know they're like they're like leaves in the wind (laughs) Whatever sometimes direction you have to the make political the winds decisions. are blowing. Yeah, sometimes you have to make the tough decisions so that in the future you can extort Major League Baseball for more campaign funds. Right. <laughs> all, all parody, by the way. All par- Yeah, complete and total parody. What is not parody is this hypothetical. Do you think that maybe Rob Manfred has been pushing for lowering game time? Not because he thinks that baseball fans are going to flock back, but because he thinks that they're going to have to pay players for all of the extra time that they're actually playing baseball (laughs) out there. I love that conspiracy theory. That's like a three, I think on the tinfoil hat meter, but I love it. I love seeing it. I love the energy. He's seen the writing on the wall for a decade. And he said, you know what? If we get game time down to two hours instead of three hours at the minor league baseball level, that's 33% of pay that I'm saving the owners. I would respect that. I'm the greatest commissioner of all time. That playing four-dimensional chess over four, here. I mean, I think you're Rob. giving him far too much credit. Nope. Rob is a four-dimensional political actor. <laughs> he's operating on the astral plane, dude. You don't even know what he's thinking about. <laughs> All right, sixth and final question, Alex. Is there any other information that you believe could help the Senate Judiciary Committee's analysis of MLB's century-old antitrust exemption? I have some information. Okay. It's very valuable information. Mm-hmm. That valuable information can be applied to many things in society. That, that valuable information is this. Um, the Supreme Court is illegitimate and their ruling on the MLB's antitrust exemption is also illegitimate. And all of their other rulings are illegitimate because they're an illegit- illegitimate body that doesn't actually care about anybody. <laughs> That's, yeah. Except maintaining power. That's my other information that I believe could help inform the Senate Judiciary Committee's analysis. Do you think? It was, it was very illegitimate 100 years ago, just as it's, it's illegitimate now, just as other decisions that they are making yeah. are illegitimate. 
Yeah. Do you think that's going to be a convincing argument for Charles Grassley? We have shared quite a bit of useful information that Harry Marino could include in his response to this letter, but I don't think that Harry would include that. So I don't think that Charles Grassley is going to have to make that decision. <laughs> what, I, what I will offer to Harry as a potential addendum to his response is, is not even my own declaration. It is the words of former Atlanta Braves owner, Ted Turner, who... Thank you, based Ted. <laughs> doing, doing the hard work for us. Uh, who, after the, the league was forced to pay out a trio of settlements after losing three arbitration cases uh, regarding collusion in the 80s, he famously said to his, to his fellow owners, quote, we have the only legal monopoly in America and we're fucking it up. <laughs> Ted, oh, thank man. you. Can you imagine if he was still an owner now? Oh, God. Talk about fucking it up. Amazing quote by him. Amazing quote by him. God, this he would give us so much podcast fodder if he was still an <laughs> owner these days. God, well, he'd be like Steve a, Cohen on steroids. He's a former owner. So can we does he I don't think he does media anymore. Let's try to get him on. All time <laughs> shot in the dark. <laughs> We're just email like ted.turner mm-hmm. at tnt.com. <laughs> I'm a I'm a very big uh uh CNN guy. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I you know, I want to give him his flowers while he's still here. You know, some advice in the podcasting world that I often hear and give is that sometimes if you if you want to shoot your shot, just do it on the podcast. You never know who's listening. So if somebody is listening, if Ted himself, Ted, if you're listening, <laughs> come on the podcast. The invite's open. Um, that's all I got. This was supposed to be an abbreviated episode. It, of course, turned into a full episode. Um, one, one final thing to mention. It's hilarious that Ken Rosenthal and Maria Torres, but it's hilarious to see Ken Rosenthal, literally Ken Rosenthal's name in a footnote from a letter from the Senate from a bunch mm-hmm. of senators. Yeah. That's, that's, it's just, if we hadn't jumped the shark before <laughs> with this podcast, but with society in general, the, the yeah. shark is sufficiently jumped. What a whirlwind of, of a letter that really is. I, I again want to underscore how, how cautious I am in getting too overly optimistic here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And this certainly is not the kind of thing that Major League Baseball will, will let go down without a fight. But as the courts have reaffirmed in the past, the so-called illegitimate courts have reaffirmed in the past. No, it's not to, so-called. It's just they not, are. They are. They are definitively illegitimate courts. It's up to Congress to do something about this exemption if they really want to. They've had opportunities before. They haven't done much with it, but that could change. It could. Many things could happen. Many things can happen at any moment. Really, my closing thoughts on this are that it's a fool's errand to think that these senators are going to actually do anything for you. So mm-hmm. uh, the, the most direct way to improve minor league working conditions would be to unionize the damn minor leagues. And I still stand by that. They still support that effort. I still would like that to happen. And I don't give a damn about the antitrust exemption if we get a union in the minor leagues. Whoa. Whoa. This guy doesn't give a damn about the antitrust exemption. It's a firebrand. I don't know what to tell you. I mean, I'm just... 
Right. And this letter specifically focuses on minor leaguers, right? Now, what we what we haven't really talked about is all the other things that the antitrust exemption enables, right? Things like team relocation and uh, blackouts, everything that kind of is outside of the scope of labor relations, right? And if you're interested yeah, in hearing senators more about that. They can't get brownie points on that. No, they can't. They can't they, seem they like they're get to championing look like the working people by right, doing that. Exactly, exactly. Nobody yes. wants to hear about the time that the A's tried to move to San Jose. It's not going to win them any points, political points, Alex. <laughs> I don't know. That San Jose voting block is is on the on the come up, I hear. Mike Lee is really going for that San Jose voting block. He's like, I need the good people of the extended Bay Area. <laughs> anyway, you were saying uh, if people want to hear more about that, they can go to our episode antitrust issues that came out last year, I believe, where we break down all the parts of the exemption and potentially what a a flat-out repeal of it would mean for the state of the league, right? Not that we are facing that possibility at the moment, but I thought we had an interesting conversation about, about what this exemption actually means, because it's very esoteric. And and a lot of the the parts of baseball that were enabled by this antitrust exemption, we sort of just kind of take for granted as being part of the sport, right? Without really stopping to question whether or not there's another way. And trust me, there always is. Yeah. Um, And I would point people to two other episodes if they're interested in hearing more about the antitrust exemption and how it affects minor league labor. Um, The first one would be, uh, it was a league, it's called A League Built on Trust featuring Jim Quinn. That was from January 27th of this year. That's when we talked about the case that is currently in the courts right now, ascending its way to the Supreme Court to try to repeal this decision. Um, and the one of the lead litigators on that case, Jim Quinn. And then our conversation with Harry Marino, which I mentioned at the top of this, this episode, which was on February 21st of this year. Um, a great conversation with Harry about how he views all these things and how he might actually formulate his legitimate response to this letter, not our um, hijacked podcast response. Uh, I think that does it for this week, Alex, unless you have anything else to add. We could use our, our crystal ball to talk about whatever happens on Saturday. The Swarovski crystal ball that sells for $350 on MLB.com's website. Yes, yes. Ex- thank you. Yes. I have one sitting on my desk right here. I'm staring at I it. I hold one speak. during all pods. <laughs> right. Thank you. Uh, thank you to the five members of the Alex Rodriguez VIP club tier who help us to afford our Swarovski crystal balls. Those five members this week are Alexis, Jake, Craig, Ben, and Tristan. If you would like to become a supporter, a producer, Alex Rodriguez VIP level supporter of the Tipping Pitches podcast and get a shout out at the end of every episode, five of you at the end of every episode. Thank you so much to the dozens of people who have signed up for that tier. It's patreon.com backslash tipping pitches. I hope um, nothing important happened in the time between when we recorded this podcast and when this podcast comes out into the world. But guess what? It's not changing because I'm going on vacation and everybody deserves that. So thanks for listening and we will be back next week. Rodriguez. Tipping pitches. Tipping pitches. This is the one that I love the most. Tipping pitches. 
So we'll see you next week. See ya! It is one that was made by former Braves owner. Mm, wait. Yeah, he's still kicking. This motherfucker looks like Moonlight Graham. <laughs> he really does.